You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Hello, I'm Shauna Watley, Senior Policy Advisor with Helen and Knight, and this is our Eyes on Washington Public Policy and Regulatory Group podcast, and we are here and excited to be on our four part series, this being the fourth part of our sickle cell um, awareness episodes. We're very excited to have our co-host with us today, Tammy Boyd with the Black Women's Health Imperative, as well as Sonia Elling with Bloomberg Bio. I'm so thankful for our participants on this podcast today. We have Dr. James Taylor, MD, the Director of the Center for Sickle Cell Disease at Howard University. And so we'd like to jump right in. Dr. Taylor, can you give us a little bit of background about the center and the history of how Howard University got involved with sickle cell? So it's a long history, uh, Ms. Watley. This started actually in 1948 with an amazing man that I've learned more about in the last five years, Roland B. Scott. He was a 1934 MD graduate of Howard University. He specialized in pediatrics and had additional training in immunology, uh, returned to Howard and joined the Division of Pediatrics. It wasn't a department in 1936 or 37 when he joined. And around 1945, he recognized that there was a disproportionate number of children in Washington, D.C. affected by sickle cell anemia that nobody knew very much about. And in 1948, he published his first paper. It was the prevalence of sickling at Friedman's Hospital. That launched his career into becoming an expert in this disease uh, as a non-hematologist. And he is largely credited in the early 1970s with lobbying Congress and was one of the architects with uh, both Congress and the, um, and the president with Public Law 92-294. Uh, that was passed on May 16th, 1972. That was the National Sickle Cell Control Act. And amazingly, this is a disease that took an act of Congress to start to authorize the National Institutes of Health to study it. Uh, around that time, uh, just before that law was passed, uh, the Board of Trustees at Howard University established the Center for Sickle Cell Disease. So 2022 is our 50th anniversary and the Howard University Center for Sickle Cell Disease, and 2022 will be the 50th anniversary of the passage of the National Sickle Cell Control Act. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Can you um, walk us through a little bit about the legislation that was passed? What did it do for um, sickle cell? So uh, what it did in a nutshell, and this is one that I've, I've really thought about intensely for the last five years. We're really trying to delve down into exactly what Dr. Scott did in this process, but it authorized the National Institutes of Health. Prior to May 1972, the NIH was spending very little money on sickle cell disease, and most of it was studying how red cells sickle. 
nothing for patients. There were no therapies. It authorized NIH to establish 10 national centers at universities spread around the country that would be centers of clinical and research excellence. And I believe it was um, 1974, they appropriated about $40 million for sickle cell disease. So prior to that time, there was less than $250,000 spent a year on sickle cell disease in total. So in a nutshell, that's what it did. But the downside to this, the unintended consequence is the NIH focuses on research. So about 2007, the NIH decided to dismantle the 10 centers. I guess it had grown to 15, but they dismantled the centers because they felt that they were providing too much clinical care and taking money away from research. And to do research, especially patient-oriented or translational research, you need both patients and researchers in one place at one time. So this has been... uh, you know, the unintended consequence is there are inequities in de- delivering clinical care. Everyone wants to study these patients, but at the same time, it's very hard for them to get clinical care. Wow. So at Howard's Sickle Cell Center, are you providing both or do you just do the research? We do both uh, and always have. I, I guess I'm the uh, one, two, three, or fifth director of the center. So every decade, uh, there's a new director, and it's it's been a lot of very prominent, uh, more prominent than myself, uh, excellent clinicians and researchers at the same time. So we provide clinical care to all comers. You know, the downside is we do have to pay attention to insurance. You have to be insured to get clinical care. If you're uninsured, We can do some things about it. So we have a social worker on staff to address those types of issues. And at the same time, every day, I guess yesterday I was in clinic, I saw 10, 12 patients, and I signed off on five research documents for patients who are doing different research activities in clinic. So in my mind, when I'm doing one, I'm doing the other. And it can range from laboratory-based studies, genetic studies, and drug-related trials. And so, and how many centers are there like yours in the country? Very few. Off the top of my head, and this is not exhaustive, but the ones that stand out in my mind are Oakland Children's Hospital in Oakland, California. They've had a very large sickle cell program for both adults and children at a pediatric hospital. The University of Illinois, Chicago at Cook County Hospital has always had a prominent sickle cell program. The Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, has a state-sponsored center for sickle cell. Uh, Johns Hopkins University for decades and decades, maybe not quite as long as, as Howard University, but has had a very prominent sickle cell program. And I give a shout out to one community-based organization that is will uh, this year be celebrating its 50th anniversary. The Martin Center in Indianapolis, Indiana, is a community-based organization to advocate for clinical care and research for sickle cell disease. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are other terrific places to go, but they're largely few and far between. Wow. So um, I'd like to turn it over to um, my co-host, Sonia Elaine. I believe she has a few questions for you as well. So I have so many after listening to you, Dr. Taylor. Um, um, You're very informative and have helped 
provide more background information for us on a variety of things. One thing we've talked about and heard is that there was a huge gap, if that's the right word, in regards to care and access to care for people with sickle cell when they um, become adults, when they age out of pediatric care. So I, I would love to get your thoughts on how we could address that, because that's one thing we've been you know, being in the DC policy area and all the work that um, Shauna does in the government affairs um, policy area, as well as myself and Black Women's Health Imperative, trying to figure out how we can work with policymakers to make some changes. So we'd love your thoughts on um, what might be a possibility to try to help really address that huge gap that exists for people with sickle cell as they enter adulthood and, and leave pediatric care. Sure. Thank you for the question. Uh, good question. I give you my perspective. So I originally trained as a pediatrician and I did a long postdoctoral fellowship in the lab. And I had an amazing opportunity to join an adult sickle cell uh, research and clinical care group at the end of that fellowship. And I jumped at it and I now have more experience. I've never been in a pediatric department and I have more experience in internal medicine now than I do in pediatrics uh, in terms of clinical care. Uh, so what is my perspective? Well, one, when you're a child, you go to a children's hospital and most large cities in the country have a children's hospital. In Washington, DC, it's Children's National Medical Center. Uh, you can think of many different large American cities and they all have children's hospitals. And what you have in a children's hospital is a concentration of subspecialists in every possible subspecialty of pediatric care. Um, and this means when you have a multi-organ disease that affects everything, you have one-stop shopping. Your parents take you to one place. And when you leave that pediatric care, nobody tells you that perhaps the best sickle cell care in Washington, D.C., is at Johns Hopkins Hospital or at Howard University Hospital or uh, perhaps Washington Hospital Center and maybe even um, the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond. Those are kind of the four places that I would go if I were send my child if I were a parent of a child with sickle cell. But I think this gets to the larger question on how our healthcare is organized in the United States. And I have an international perspective. Since 2018, Howard has had a collaboration with the Republic of Congo. Uh, they've started a national center for sickle cell in Brazzaville. And I went there in 2018 and 2019. This whole project's been interrupted by the pandemic. But Congo is a medium income country in Africa. Uh, you're either very wealthy or very poor. There's no middle class, not surprising. Um, and it means, and there's no national healthcare system, but sickle cell is such a problem in the country. It affects the gross domestic product. And I have that straight from the government. So they set up a, they found the money to fund a national center for sickle cell. And when you're starting an organization like that to provide care, you have staffing issues, which means you pay salaries. And so they are open from nine to five or 7 p.m., something like that. They're not open 24 hours and they're not a hospital, but they deliver care like it's a hospital. They have an emergency room there. They have a day hospital. They can treat you. If you're having a pain crisis and you'd be hospitalized in the United States, in Congo, you go home at 7 p.m. and you come back the next day. So you're not admitted overnight and therefore they don't have to spend money on 
24-hour staffing. That's that would be so they have significant cost savings. In the United States, it's completely opposite. When you have sickle cell disease, let's be blunt, the major manifestation is pain that brings you into contact with the healthcare system. That is 90% of hospitalizations. So when you have pain, you go to the emergency room. The emergency room physicians, to be very cynical, they think of patients like vectors. They have a direction and a velocity. The velocity is about one hour to make a decision. And the direction is they're going to send you home or they're going to admit you to the hospital. And they have to make that decision that period of time. So about a third of the time you're admitted to the hospital. And then in sickle cell, you're not cared for by a specialist in sickle cell care. You're cared for by a hospitalist who's a general internal medicine physician who may have expertise in sickle cell, but may not have expertise in sickle cell. And when you consider that this is a rare disease, you're not getting the most informed care. So there are national guidelines for sickle cell, and I would submit to you that most hospitalists aren't aware of them or confuse them with other guidelines that apply to general medical patients. So I think that's one of the challenges for young adults in transitioning to adult care is they go from going to one place and when you get in an ambulance as an adult, they could take you to any one of 10 hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area, and you have no control over where you go. So you may not necessarily go to a hospital where they know your case. I had no idea about the structure and how um, what they were doing over in Congo. That is fascinating. I'd be curious to also know how you think we could address this. Howard has this great facility. You do the research and you do providing of care. You mentioned how from the 1972 Act, we had these centers of, I'm going to call them centers of excellence because that's where my, my brain is going, is that there aren't existing centers of excellence for sickle cell. I, I guess I'd be curious your thoughts on that to kind of bring back what had originally been kind of established um, from the 1972 Sickle Cell Act and try to figure out a way to do these centers that might be placed in areas where we know there's a high patient population of people with sickle cell and whether or not you think that might help begin addressing the problem and some of the things I know the NASME report highlighted. So I, I highlight a couple of points. So one, I've been involved with the National Minority Quality Forum. They're at the think tank in Washington, D.C., and they've embarked on a, a really detailed analysis to find out where patients are. And I, I guess I'm not surprised by the findings, but it's something that hasn't been bluntly stated that most of the patients, not exclusively, but most of the patients start in the mid-Atlantic and head into the deep south, uh, because that's where the, you know, you find African-Americans living more commonly. And the other thing that struck me is Washington, D.C., on a per capita basis, among Medicaid and Medicare recipients uh, or beneficiaries, is the number one or two per capita state or jurisdiction uh, in the United States. So it doesn't surprise me. I think that you know one of the one of the problems is the delivery of care. And essentially what the Republic of Congo has done without realizing it, it's just the way they design their system. What they have is a glorified day hospital. And what a day hospital is, this is an effort that was pioneered by Memorial Healthcare in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, also, Johns Hopkins Hospital has had a day hospital for a decade now. And uh, the University of Connecticut has also started a day hospital. And what this is, instead of going to the emergency room where you're gonna see a new physician every time, 
uh, you come in to a sickle cell center where we know who you are. We know what you're on as far as pain medicine as an outpatient, and we deliver the care. And from my perspective, if you sit there for eight hours, I'm happy with that. So it's a different decision-making process than the emergency room where they want to make a decision in about an hour so that they can turn over a bed. In my mind, my goal is to keep you out of the hospital. So if I let you sit there for eight hours and you can go home, I've accomplished the goal. And so what Johns Hopkins has published uh, on this is that they've lowered their admission rate below 10%. And they also incentivize this. So if you're taking care of yourself, going to the day hospital is a privilege. You have to come to clinic on a regular basis. You have to be on some type of disease-modifying therapy, and you have to be a responsible patient. To, the, to a large extent, we, we don't get uh, judgy about this, but it incentivizes you taking care of yourself and it's much more cost effective uh, than admitting you to the hospital. And we probably do far fewer laboratory and imaging studies than most emergency rooms do. Well, that's pretty impressive. You're just a wealth of information. <laughs> um, I have so many questions, follow-up questions. But I know my uh, our other co-host, Tammy Boyd, would like to jump in and ask a few questions as well, Dr. Taylor. Yes, uh, Dr. Taylor, um, it's quite impressive. This is very helpful, extremely helpful um, information and insightful. A question I would have would be, you know, what, what is your vision for, because um, you talk about um, some of the work you've done in the Republic of Congo, but what is your vision for the sickle cell center there at Howard? So uh, vision for uh, the Center for Sickle Cell Disease. So not to put weight on my shoulders, but I feel an incredible responsibility for the legacy of the center and for the legacy of Howard University and, and really built on the shoulders of Roland Scott, the guy behind the National Sickle Cell Control Act, and also Charles Drew, who is one of the founders of the field of transfusion medicine. He was a faculty member at Howard in 1950. And we use a lot of blood transfusion therapy and sickle cells. So I want to build on their legacy. For 50 years now, the Center for Sickle Cell Disease has largely been funded by federal grants. And federal grants are what I call fickle. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Financial downturn in 2008 might be a bad time to apply for a grant or it's more competitive. Um, so, and I thought about this a lot strategically. So what we do not have a day hospital at Howard University Hospital. Uh, this is going to change very soon. So one thing that we have is we've gotten a center of excellence, a five-year grant from the city of Washington, D.C. to provide care for sickle cell patients in Washington, D.C., highest per capita prevalence in, in the United States. So good thing. Hopefully, we can deliver on that promise. From that will come some of the money that will start a day hospital for us. So that's my first vision. The second is, I see this all the time in terms of curative therapies like transplants. I get letters all the time from other transplant centers asking me to identify people who are eligible, have a match for transplant. They want the patient. They want to transplant them. And then they always say, and we'll send them back when we're done. And that's and so I've talked to some of these centers and, and not all of them are like this, but I say, why don't you start your own sickle cell program? And they say, well, we don't do sickle cell here. We just want to do the transplant. The trouble is that the care for sickle cell is poorly reimbursed. The transplants are well reimbursed and it's a money maker. My vision long term is to 
be able to provide that therapy here at Howard University Hospital to build the infrastructure. And even the, the delivery of transplant and gene therapy and gene editing is going to change over the next five years. I expect that more of this is going to be outpatient, which would be perfect for a place like Howard, where we may not have all the inpatient specialty care. The next is how to fund this. Yes, we have a five-year grant from Washington, DC. It is a very generous grant. Uh, for a center of excellence, to build a center of excellence on top of a center. And so we have launched an initiative with development at Howard University to raise an endowment. And I've got a number in mind, and I've got a, an inaugural seven-figure donor who's going to give us a lot of money very generously, something that they approached me without this idea, and I started thinking about what to do with a seven-figure donation we put it in an endowment, and so we can live off the income from investments. This is what universities do, and we just do it within our center. And if we reach our goal, I will have enough money to run the center as if we had a, a large federal grant from the National Institutes of Health. And then on top of that, we'll apply for grants too. And this will enhance both research and the delivery of clinical care, with an endowment, we can, if we have a federal grant for research, we can pay for the research off the grant and use more of the endowment towards clinical care. It will give us the option to expand our services. Wow, that's amazing. An endowment for the sickle cell center. I mean, that's, I would say that would be quite a, a legacy. That's excellent. It's, a, it's an awesome vision. So for community-based organizations and uh, sickle cell disease um, warriors and advocates, you know, what, what can we do to be helpful? Um, I know we're looking at working on some legislation on Capitol Hill. You know, what can we do or what would you like to see the federal government do in terms of sickle cell to sort of advance sickle cell? Yeah, so, so I think this is win-win no matter what your political leanings are for all sides. Sickle cell care is expensive. I was called down to the Department of Health in Washington, D.C. my first year at Howard, 2017. I've been in the area for a lot longer, but in the district for six months. And they had done an analysis of Medicaid patients, about 600 adults in, in Washington, D.C. I was the number one prescriber of hydroxyurea in the district. And it was only 15% of that, those 600 patients. And they wanted to know if that was an accurate number, if that was inaccurate. And I said, it sounds about right. And then they saw that 75% of the patients were getting chronic opioid therapy which is treating a symptom and not treating the underlying disease. And I said, that sounds about right. And then they told me something really profound. They spend $71 million a year on sickle cell disease. That's $120,000 per patient per year. And I told them that sounds about right to me. Now that I've been around and we're actually collecting data on this, what I see is that 90% of the labs ordered on patients, 90% of the imaging studies are done in emergency rooms and hospitals. And some of the most severely affected patients are getting blood counts drawn once every two or three days, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I couldn't justify doing it more than once a week, sometimes three times a day because they're going to three different emergency rooms. So when you start to see patterns like that, what can you do as a community-based organization? really highlight how expensive and how inefficient and low quality the care is that we're delivering. 
Nobody would accept this for any other disease. And then tell members of Congress and and elected leaders about the history of the disease. And then just funding. I I think one of the central issues with sickle cell is that more than 75% of patients can't work, which means that they're on Medicare and Medicaid. This is the lowest quality insurance that pays the least. And what hospitals do is they usually want a small percentage of their patient base to have Medicare and Medicaid. Private insurance pays 100% of what they bill. Medicare, Medicaid, about 33%. So uh, places like Howard are unusual in that the university is giving me the thumbs up on seeing the least insured, the least financial benefit, and told me, have at it, see as many patients as you can. That is a rare thing to find. And again, some of the other places that I've mentioned, University of Connecticut are doing that. It is on us to look at doing this more efficiently, but that's where people like you bothering Congress and saying, what are we doing about sickle cell? In 2021, we have four FDA-approved medications for sickle cell. Another comparable disease that is equally terrible is cystic fibrosis. There are eight FDA-approved medications, and they were approved a long time ago for all genotypes of cystic fibrosis. We now have two new drugs that are available to all patients with sickle cell. That's been a major improvement. Prior to 2019, 20% of patients, I could offer them nothing more than symptomatic therapy. Nothing worked. So we need people to be on the front lines and learning how to lobby Congress. Tell you one story. In 1975, Roland Scott testified in front of Congress. Uh, they wanted to expand from 10 to 15 sickle cell centers. And so he brought up this amazing statistic that in 1974, $40 million had been appropriated for six sickle cell disease uh, research and clinical care, but the federal government only spent 16 million. And this is what I've learned from other advocates that you got to keep your eye on the money. That money gets spent. It was just spent on something else. So you got to be looking uh, prospectively about what what you want and look at what you're getting and ensuring that that's being spent on the intended recipient of the appropriated funds. Can you elaborate and provide your thoughts on the disparity of funding? Like, why do you think that is the case? And just to put it in context, if you know the numbers or data, like what's being spent on cystic fibrosis? Um, I know there's a lot less cases of cystic fibrosis compared to individuals who have been diagnosed with sickle cell. Yeah, so um, so there are about 33,000 cystic fibrosis patients in the United States. Uh, they The NIH spends about $100 million a year on cystic fibrosis research. There are about 100,000 sickle cell disease patients. But that sink in. Cystic fibrosis is a disease, primarily the the mutation in the CFTR gene comes from Northern Europe, okay? So it's primarily in people of Northern European descent. Sickle cell disease, the sickle cell mutation arose in Africa because it protects from malaria. So you have to be of African descent. Has nothing to do with your skin color. You just have to have some, some segment of your genome on chromosome 11 that is from Africa. And so we see... Um, sickle cell disease in Greece, Italy, Sicily, Spain, North Africa, and obviously a lot in Africa. And it, it's all related to how 
how many of your genes come from African ancestors. Why the disparity? I think it's just sickle cell got started late, 1972. And I think that, um, well, another is that uh, a couple things have happened. Another terrible disease is hemophilia. And the 1970s were an amazing time where a lot of pub funding went into these terrible genetic diseases. And in 1971 or 1972, for hemophilia, they established 174 hemophilia treatment centers across the United States. There are about 20,000 hemophilia patients across the U.S. So that translates into about 125 patients per center. And what those federally, and it was passed through the Social Security Administration. So what's happening here is that is entirely funding clinical care, a doctor's salary and a nurse's salary for 125 patients. Well, I have a nurse practitioner, a nurse, and myself, and we follow at least 255 patients, and we right now receive no federal funding. So you can see that's the disparity in care right there. It's an unintended consequence of legislation being passed for another disease that really provides clinical care, and that was never done. That was, as I say, the unintended consequence of the National Sickle Cell Control Act. You pass the research portion of it, but the clinical care portion was not done in the same way. The NIH spends money on hemophilia just the same as any other genetic disease, but it also relies on advocates and people lobbying their members of Congress. So we can all think about in hemophilia, Ryan White getting HIV in the 1980s. It was a terrible thing. It was a good thing. The legacy is we saw a problem. We fixed a problem with legislation that led to better care for those patients. Hopefully that will happen for sickle cell. So as we look at 2022 being the 50th anniversary for um, the censure as well as the legislation, you know, would you recommend that we really try to bring back some of the funding for the, the clinicians or the clinical aspect of it? as a part of the legislation? And, and what else would you like to see in the, the legislation? I think the research funding, $100 million per year, um, well, on a per capita basis, it's underfunded. And uh, if you compare to other diseases like cancer, you know, again, the 1970s, uh, Richard Nixon declared war on cancer and created the National Cancer Institute. That is the largest institute at the National Institutes of Health, has the most funding. That's why cancer care is in private practice so lucrative because there are so many drugs and so many clinical trials and so many companies focusing on it. You have a whole institute dedicated to a terrible and unfortunately very common disease. Breast cancer, I'm always amazed at how common it is. It's not to minimize that. But in sickle cell, we have the clinical care portion of it, and that makes uh, uh, Ms. Ellings uh, endeavors at Bluebird Bio that much more difficult because they want to run clinical trials and find out if their therapy is effective so that they can apply the FDA and actually sell it to people. Well, to run a clinical trial, you have to have participants and you have to have them organize networks of centers. The National Cancer Institute has comprehensive cancer centers designated all across the country. So when they do a clinical trial, they may have 200 centers participating in a trial. Even pediatric cancer, amazingly rare disease, 
16,000 children across country, but there's a network of phase one centers for new drugs to be used in children with cancer. We need that some type of network like that, and that's a clinical care network. So I'd say so Sickle Cell Control Act, as it stands, is great for research, and that will lead to innovation. However, if you look at clinical care, that's where the real problem is. So we need another act, and I'd say it should be separate, focused entirely on delivering clinical care and more efficient. And what I'd argue is that we could probably save federal dollars, uh, federal and state dollars in a big way by delivering more efficient care. Just ask yourself, what if we got 90% fewer laboratory studies? I don't know what a complete blood count costs. I don't know, 150, maybe maybe more dollars every time we do it. We're doing it every two, three days on a patient. Think about the cost savings there. So some type of clinical care network that could also be integrated with research would be outstanding. It would make Ms. Elling's efforts at Bluebird Bio and every other company that is developing therapies for sickle cell, they're much easier because then they'd know exactly where to go. And these would be integrated centers. I think it would benefit patients because like the children's hospital model, you have this big building. Everyone knows if my kid is sick, I go there. If you have these centers, at least in sickle cell, no general public wouldn't know this, but they'd know I'm going to go to the comprehensive sickle cell center. And this would also put other doctors on notice. You know, if you don't have the expertise in treating this disease, maybe you should refer them to one of these centers. We see patients who are very, very sick, and we don't want to see them when they're very sick. We want to make interventions before they get sick. So it's a different perspective. I think that would be the best advice I could give for the future. Wow, that's very, very helpful. I'm just thrilled that you were willing to talk to us today. I know Sonia and Tammy and I are going to um, come together to figure out how we can incorporate your excellent um, recommendations into policy recommendations as we talk to members on the Hill. I just wanted to say thank you for being such an amazing and articulate advocate for the um, sickle cell community. And I'm sure Dr. Roland Scott would be incredibly impressed with all the work that you're carrying on in his footsteps. And um, I look forward to seeing you up testifying before Congress because you are an amazing advocate. So thank you for all that you do. Yeah, I think you all have said it and really articulated it well. Um, and, and again, I really commend you on your vision um, for the Howard Sickle Cell Center there and the endowment. Those are very, very amazing you know, goals and um, accomplishments. So thank you so much for, for taking your time to talk to us today. Well, thank you all. And thank you for all you do in pharma and in community-based organizations. We depend on all of you and, and we get donations from all types of organizations, individuals, CBOs, and pharma, and it's all very helpful in putting forth our mission and caring for our patients. And so once again, thank you for joining us today to discuss sickle cell disease. We hope that this discussion shed light on the challenges of living with sickle cell disease and the barriers that must be addressed in order to ensure equitable access within the sickle cell disease community. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit 
hklaw.com slash PPR.